Times Like Now is an interview program, interviews with interesting people who are doing cool stuff, and my name is Trevor Collins. Part two of my interview with Dr. Howard Librand, Skagit County, Washington State Health Officer. We're continuing to discuss ivermectin, COVID, and vaccines. Dr. Librand, thank you so much for being with us today again. Uh, part two of my interview with you regarding where we left off last, we were discussing the R naught number of one to two point three. Can please continue on that train? So you can calculate the herd immunity required if you know the R naught number. So um, it was calculated that it would require about seventy percent herd immunity in order to um, to decrease the R naught value, R naught number of the natural. Um, original COVID-19 virus to the point where it would be gradually snuffed out by our defenses. So um, unfortunately, well, fortunately that worked, but unfortunately the Delta virus then, the Delta variant then became the predominant strain in the United States. And it has an r naught number somewhere between six and 10. And if you calculate um, the herd immunity required to counter that, it's more like 95%. So um, it's it's like the goalposts are moving. And the more infectious the virus, the more immunity or more mitigation strategies are needed to counteract it. And right now we've got a, herd immunity is, is the combination of immunity from natural disease and um, in, and vaccine-based uh, immunity. And in many places, uh, I think that that herd immunity is um, high enough, if you use good mitigation strategies, it's high enough to stop the spread of Delta. But in the cases in the states where there's not much vaccination, uh, 20, 30, 40%, um, sometimes um, then of the remaining people who are not immune, the majority of them are going to have to get infected with natural disease before the herd immunity is reached. So, yeah, that's, that, that, that is a, a that is some bad math. Uh, I don't like the looks of that idea. The, um, the other thing that's interesting there though, is that, the, the 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 immunity that natural disease causes and the immunity that the um, that the vaccines cause is gradually decreasing over time. So there's another situation where the goalposts are kind of are kind of moving. You get the majority of your people immunized either through vaccination or natural disease, and then time goes on and they again become susceptible exactly why we have, well, one reason why we have uh, flu shots annually. The other reason being that a different strain um, becomes the predominant strain. So we have to um, reboost everybody with a a little different vaccine. So I I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the uh, the topic of the day seems to be the ivermectin. So ivermectin, what do you know of its use? Well, first of all, anecdotal reports. That's reports, stories about your friends, stories about your patients, 
stories about you, which um, have very few, um, we call it an end number, then the number of people in this study that you're doing is one or very, are very low. Anecdotal reports are very difficult in COVID because the majority of people um, will never get sick with it. Um, they'll not be exposed. They won't get it, um, at least initially early on. The, my thoughts about that are changing a little bit with Delta. And of those who get sick, many of them won't know that they are that they do have it. Um, it it'll be asymptomatic. And those who know that they have it, the majority of those will get better without any treatment. So if you take something and get better, 98% of people who have COVID get better. So, and if you attribute it to the thing you just took and start talking anecdotally about the benefits of this thing, whatever it is, um, it's not, it's not very good science because like I said, the, the death rate from the people who have COVID proven COVID is, is low. I mean, it, it's one or 2%. And that's, that's not low in one sense, but in another sense, if you're talking about um, whether you're going to survive it or not, you're probably going to survive it. So that's how all of these stories about this sort of stuff gets, get started. You'll have a physician who'll say, though, I treated 17 of my patients with this X drug and none of them died. Well, an equal or a, a, um, a similar 17 people in another situation, probably none of them would have died either just because the, the mortality rate of the disease is quite low. Um, but specifically about ivermectin, it's, it's been around for a long time. Um, I've prescribed it many times in the past for um, certain parasitic type diseases. Veterinarians prescribe it all the time. And in third world countries, developing countries um, where sanitation is not as good, parasites are a huge problem. And ivermectin has been a godsend for those, for those countries. It, um, yeah, I understand. They, it, it's been called a wonder drug by the World Health Organization. And even the, the, the creator or microbiologist won a Nobel Prize for it in 2015. So it, it has some credentials, but you've said that it's in vitro. So maybe explain well, a little bit more of the process of it. Yeah, when you're talking about parasites, it, it has a good track record. Um, it is given to millions of people worldwide and it effectively treats their parasites. However, it's, um, to my knowledge, it has not been clinically proven to be effective against any of the viruses. There's a, many uh, people who are proponents of ivermectin will talk about the viruses that it's active against, um, and they include influenza, um, HIV, uh, the virus of dengue fever, Zika virus, um, and others, but yet yeah, West Nile no, and others. Yes. Yeah, but there's no clinical treatment that uses ivermectin for those diseases. And, you know, I haven't looked into all of them individually, but what that would tell me is that although ivermectin is effective against them in vitro, in the test tube or in tissue cultures, 
it's not effective in the human body. Um, or we would have a treatment for HIV. We would have a treatment for Zika, a treatment for West Nile. But it, ivermectin is not being used for those. And I don't think it's because it hasn't been studied. I think it's be, because it's been studied and found wanting. Now, so if you, um, you read a study that says that ivermectin is effective against SARS-CoV-2 in vitro, uh, one dose will kill, you know, nine, whatever, of the majority of this virus in vitro in cell culture, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be an effective drug in, in humans. And if you look at all the studies that have been done um, about using ivermectin, it can be used to um, just take generally against, um, well, in a, in a sitting, a situation much like we're in right now, um, proponents would say you could take ivermectin to prevent yourself from getting sick. You can also take it after you've been ex uh, exposed. You can take it once you know you have the disease. And, um, you know, the earlier you take it, the more effective it is. All of these claims are um, not really are not really proven. If you look at a meta-analysis, a conglomeration of all the studies that have been done worldwide about ivermectin, it basically, more times than not, um, doesn't show an effect. And there, there are one or two studies which were that showed a pretty dramatic effect, and that kind of tilts the numbers to make it look like this is an effective against coronavirus in humans. But if you look at those studies, they're not well controlled. There are major flaws with the study design, et cetera. And I, I'm not an expert on ivermectin. I'm not a... Um, an expert on meta-analyses, but um, I know enough to listen to the experts. And the experts right now are saying that there's just a not enough evidence out there to say that this drug is effective. And then it's compounded by the fact that it is available in the veterinary market and the dose for horses is 100 times the dose for a human. So you can just imagine what somebody who reads a report like this that says it's effective and then you go out and get a horse dose, um, it's going to be toxic. So that's not helping at all in, in the, um, the whole argument about ivermectin. So No, and um, it's not helping at all in the fight uh, against this virus either. Um, and I think there is, as we mentioned, this echo chamber amongst uh, some upon the, the internet and upon the media making their claims about this and inside of an echo chamber, and then at the same time, seeing conspiracies and seeing shadows where maybe there are none, seeing devils maybe where there are none, and kind of blowing this out of proportion to a point where, again, it is a disservice to the vaccine. And as a result, a lot of people are getting sick from from taking horse pills. Um Right. Yeah, and I think any other the, further thoughts on that? Well, the answer to all of this is science. I mean, the way we usually do medicine is um, we'll find through laboratory screening, we'll find something that might prove effective. Then we'll do tissue culture or even um, animal tests in some cases. And e each step of the way um, tells us that, yeah, this looks like it might be effective. And no, it's not harmful. Right on up to where we are with the um with the vaccines where it's 
you know, been approved for use because there was a positive result at each of these steps in the trial process. Now, there have been no good um, controlled studies which compare the effects of ivermectin with other treatments or with placebo. And uh, I did notice an article, I don't have the um, the name or even the, the institution where it originated, but it's something you can find on the internet, um, that they're looking for people who are interested in participating in a controlled trial. And they would be given um, either a treatment arm, which would be the ivermectin, or a control arm, which would be either placebo or other treatments that are used against coronavirus. And um, they would be um, part of the process that proves to us that ivermectin does work. And once we have good evidence that it works um, and we know the doses that it's safe, then we could use it. Um, but uh, I don't, we're not at that point yet. And I don't think, it, again, it's because of any effort to not um, want to promote ivermectin because nobody has a patent on it or some nonsense like that. I think that if it, if it showed process, uh, promise, it would be used and used dramatically. And, and, right. like and you as you said, it would have been used for for AIDS and for for other viral right. issues. It would have already happened. And, you know, it's it's interesting to me that we have a proven safe and effective way of treating this virus. And that's the, the vaccine. Um, there is no question that it's effective. You just look at the numbers. You compare the people who are hospitalized, who've been un, or who are unvaccinated, which is the majority. I mean. And we can talk in, in depth about the safety of the vaccine if you want to do that at this point, but it is um, free at this point, paid for by the government, uh, safe, proven safe, and very effective. It, in my 31 years in medicine, this is probably um, the safest, most studied vaccine that we've ever introduced to the, to the people. You know, it just reminds me of a, of a movie where the you know, the main uh, character finds this cure for this contagious disease and everybody's all happy and then everybody refuses to take it. I mean, that's where we are right now. We found a cure for COVID and a good portion of our population is re refusing to take it. And for no good reason. We talked about the great Guillaume Barre and the fact that it's not reported with the mRNA vaccines um, and it's um, a fairly low um, probability in the uh, Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Anaphylaxis or severe allergic reactions, we see about two to five per million. Those are very treatable. It's very, it's not common for people to die of anaphylaxis if it's, if there's a controlled situation. So, and then there's the thrombosis that's seen, uh, blood clots that are seen with um, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. That was three per million. Um, and that was seen, well, it's three per million of the 14 and a half million people who got the vaccine. If you focused on just the women of childbearing age, high estrogen situations, women 15 to 50, um, well, it wouldn't have been down to 15 in this case because they weren't in the trials at that. They weren't being given to 15 year olds. But so that um, three per million is a very low number. Um, the the risk of death from 
um, blood clots from birth control pill is that high. Um, the risk of severe allergic response to penicillin um, is about the same as as for the vaccine. It's it's you know two or three per million. I mean, it's it's certainly not good if you're the person who gets that reaction. Well, the one last one I, I wanted to mention was myocarditis. That's a, a heart inflammation. And again, as an emergency room physician, um, we would see several a year with myocarditis, more than that. I mean, I would personally see that many. And they get it as a response to a viral infection, just common cold viruses. Um, and it it has also been seen in the past with one of the vaccines that we used. But in in this case, um, Johnson and John, excuse me, the um, the mRNA vaccines in young men was 22 per million. This also is a non-fatal condition for the most part. There's possibly one person who actually died from it. I don't know that the final um, evaluation of that is done, and I don't know if you'll ever know for sure that that's what he died of. But he was a young man who got myocarditis uh, after a vaccine. So. The majority of of that of the people who get myocarditis um, are not. It's not related to the vaccine. That just happens. But of those that are related to the vaccine, it's about twenty two per million. Um, and again, excuse me, two point two per million. Um, and and that's mostly young males. So um, again, we're we're still looking to. Um, further evaluate this and monitor it. Um, and, and speaking of monitoring, the the this vaccine is more closely monitored than any vaccine or medication that's ever been in, introduced to the American public. And one of the chief ways that we monitor um, side effects of the vaccine is called the VARES system, uh, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And it's a system where... Um, Individuals, um, health departments, uh, clinics, and uh, providers can report the a side effect that they think is related to the vaccine. One that was related temporally occurred within two to three weeks after the injection. And um, so those numbers are turned into the CDC, and that's a, they become a starting port, point for evaluation. Now, let's take an example of heart attacks. Heart attacks occur all the time in a community. And if you give a vaccine and three days later, the person has a heart attack, um, there's no way of knowing whether that was related to the vaccine or not. But if you look at the entire numbers of heart attacks in people who didn't get the vaccine versus heart attacks in two to three weeks after the people got the vaccine, you can show that um, heart attacks, yes, are common, but they are not more common after getting the vaccine. And in the in the VAERS system, 7,600 deaths have been reported um, in proximity after getting the vaccine. Now, that does not mean that those 7,600 deaths are because of the vaccine. That means they just happened in the two to three weeks after the vaccine. And if you look at the um, the statistics of vaccinated and unvaccinated people, other than the ones we mentioned, the 
occasional uh, anaphylaxis, the blood clots, the myocarditis, the Guillain-Barre sy syndrome, there are none. There's no diseases. None of those deaths um, were out of proportion to what you would expect in the normal community. Well, here's a question for you that just came to mind because I've been hearing a lot about this. Um, the counting of COVID deaths, somebody falls off of a roof and they had COVID. Did they fall? Did they die of COVID or did they die from falling off of the roof? There's been a lot of these uh, situations where, or so I have heard, where cases are being called a COVID death when not necessarily attributable right. to that. That is old information. Um, anybody who died with COVID was reported as a COVID case previously in the first few weeks of the of the pandemic. And then people said, wait, wait that doesn't make any sense. If this person, um, you know, has COVID or let's say gets in a car wreck, is killed and tests show that they had COVID, that is in no way is a COVID death. I, I guess you could. But those are not, if you're that's Ill, not being counted. I, I have heard that it has been or. Oh, no, no. And those have all been, those all, all of the ones that were reported initially have been pulled back and are no longer in the statistics for COVID deaths. Okay. Now, um, the cause of death is different than a, than an associated condition. And it may be listed as an associated condition, but it wasn't the cause of death in those cases. On the okay. flip side of that, though, I know that we've had many deaths early on in this pandemic of older people dying at home who um, died of COVID and were not um, suspected of having COVID at that point. And I would wager to say that there are more on that side of the coin than on the previous side of the coin. And um, we have gone back and looked at some of the, um, the samples, blood samples, et cetera, that were um, drawn on people um, who died in those first couple of months when we didn't really have a good handle or a good ability to test. Um, and it turns out they did have COVID. And those aren't being changed to COVID deaths. Um, those are the, the, as far as at least not in any um, major administrative sense, those are just left the way they are. But the, the other ones that were reported as COVID when they probably, that was not the cause of death. Those have been uh, backed out and changed. Okay. Another, um, I guess, growing epidemic that I'm sure you're aware of is our hospital and our medical staff who are reaching the wall, so to speak. Uh, we have some very overworked, uh, certainly appreciated, but overworked medical professionals who are, frankly, quite burning out on all of this. And are, I know people are being turned away from, from hospitals, partially because the hospitals are full. And is it also partially because of understaffing? I mean, what are you experiencing in your, in your daily with hospital staff who are dealing with this? Well, this whole um, trauma cascade that we're learning more about, I mean, it affects far more than just the medical personnel. Anyone who um, is, well, the, the, the entire um, natural disaster trauma um, 
knowledge that we have tells us that if you have a second trauma before you've been before you've recovered from the first you enter what's called a trauma cascade and the the it becomes additive um, and the second time around after the second disaster it's worse so if you look at what's happened with covid you know we've we've had these waves of of illness um, the most recent one was caused by the the delta variant um, one of the interim ones was probably pushed more by the the alpha variant, the B117, um, and then obviously the original one. So if you if you get knocked down a second time before you've had re- time to recover from the first time, the second time is worse. And we've kind of entered that. Um, and then there's all of the um, there's other things that go into this. There's the kind of moral outrage that we have because we know how to do something. Um, we know what we should be doing, but for example, we might not have the equipment to do it. And the, originally that was, we didn't have masks. We didn't have sufficient numbers of masks. We didn't have sufficient numbers of um, test reagents to, to test. And so we know how to do something, but we can't do it. And that's important for medical people because it 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 makes this moral outrage inside of the person, which um, you know, it's just not my fault. I mean, that's what you feel. It's not my fault. It's people aren't supporting me. The system doesn't support me. And I think we're seeing some of that with this um, with the divisive nature of our of our world right now, um, where we have it should be us and them being humans versus the virus, but it's often us and them, you know, mass versus unmasked, vaccinated versus unvaccinated, um, ivermectin believers versus non-ivermectin believers. In our last couple minutes, um, thank you again, Dr. Howard Librand of Skagit County. Um, what do you see in the coming months? Are we looking at more more variations and more mutations? Do you think we're going to have a, a, <laughs> a better winter? What is winter, winter going to bring us all inside like last year? Well, I'm hopeful that we will get a su- sufficient number of people vaccinated to make a difference with the spread of the Delta variant. Um, the Delta variant spikes in other countries with better vaccinations rates, for example, England, have been actually quite tall and narrow. Um, and hopefully we will see something similar in the United States. Um, I hope we get through this shortage of beds. Um, the, the number of hospitalizations lags behind the number of cases by about two to three weeks. So I don't think we've seen a peak in the hospitaliz- hospitalized cases yet. And there's other um, various places in the United States are at different levels in their Delta outbreak. So um, we're not all really on the same same day, the same week. But And I'm hoping that monoclonal antibodies um, become widely distributed and effective. They can be used as um, extra antibodies passively given to a person, whether they've been vaccinated or not. And they, I've seen some 
um, studies that show that they reduce hospitalization for people who are ill with COVID um, by as much as 70%. So that's a, that's kind of a, a star on the, uh, a rising star on the horizon. And I hope we can get along a little better to try and, you know, work as a team against the virus to do what we need to do. I think this virus is, is here to stay for a while, unfortunately. Right. Or so it would appear. But uh, you keep up the good fight, and uh, with you and all the other medical professionals, maybe we'll nip this thing in the bud uh, sooner rather than later. All right. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. Past episodes of Times Like Now can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. I'm Trevor Collins. I can be reached, Trevor, at timeslikenow.com. I look forward to speaking with you all next time.